Good evening. I wanted to share something with you. I know that you all have been uh, offering up a lot of prayers, and I want to say thank you. On May 27th, I think it was, my brother uh, taught Bible class for the church that they attend in Andrews, North Carolina. And then, not feeling well, he went into the hospital the next day and turned out to have a variety of problems, starting with a, a perforated colon. And from that point, he was on a ventilator and has been on a ventilator, still is on one form of a ventilator, uh, and was unconscious for several weeks. When I woke up this morning, it was very strange to see that I had missed a call at 4.49. If you want to know when to call me, it's sometime after 4.49. It was from Brent, and I couldn't believe that. I thought maybe he had missed dial, but then he called me this afternoon. I was able to talk to my brother in a conversation. He was able to talk to me for 45 minutes. Um, He's still got a ways to go, but uh, he has come that far. And I know in in great part due to the prayers that you're praying. So thank you, and please keep praying those prayers. Uh, He, uh, We'd love to hear him preach and lead singing uh, again someday. Well, we just had that reading in Luke chapter 5, and I don't know how... Uh, how familiar it is to you or how often you've wondered what it was that is being said in that particular context. But I want to kind of put it in some context for you in Luke chapter 5. When you read what's going on there, Jesus is still picking his disciples. Not only that, he has been engaged in doing a lot of healing of the sick in order to try to engender some uh, interest in who he was and what his identity was. And that being the case, Jesus, when we come to Luke chapter 5, we see some things about his ministry. We see that his popularity is expanding. His ministry is exploding. His teaching is exposing. And his opponents are exasperating. If you'll look earlier in the chapter, they have already reasoned in his heart that Jesus is a blasphemer because he said that he could forgive sins. He proves that he could by healing the one that... Uh, needed the help and who needed the forgiveness, verse 20. And now they're really going to ratchet up their criticism of Jesus. You see, they represent what was. They represent the status quo. They had their own self-serving interpretation of the old law and they manipulated the people by that particular brand of religion that they had, that false understanding of the law. Jesus would call it a shallow righteousness in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 18. But really people were going along with it because, you know, we like what's familiar. We don't like change. And Jesus represented change. He came along with a new and improved message. And they didn't like that because it upset their apple cart. May I suggest that human nature hasn't changed. And we're not immune from that as the people of God. Even if the thing that's old or the thing that's familiar is something we know that's not working, at least we know it. And then when something that is new that comes along, we automatically say, I'm not sure about that. Well, when it comes to that which is new, just because it's new doesn't necessarily mean that it's improved. We should not try new simply for the sake of new. And if new means leaving God's word, then it certainly must be rejected. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, Jeremiah is told by the Lord to stand in the way and ask and see what is the ancient path 
and walk in it and you'll find rest into your souls. The old past, the ancient past. And the people said, we will not walk in it. But the new that Jesus brings in Luke chapter 5 is not a departure from the will of God. It is a more excellent, a better, a fuller understanding of the word of God. It reflects God's teaching, God's values, and God's priorities. And so when we look at Jesus, Jesus' way is a new and improved way. It changes the way that we're prone to look at things, but it is an improved way. In fact, you can't talk about Jesus without talking about new. Where do we read about him? In the New Testament. And when we begin to walk through, we see some of the news that Jesus represents. We see that Jesus came with a new teaching that had authority, unlike the other rabbis and scribes. Mark chapter 1 and verse 27. Jesus brought a new covenant. He was going to establish it with his blood, Luke 22 and verse 20. Jesus came along and he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, John 13 and verse 34. When we're baptized into Christ, we're raised to walk in new life. Romans 6 and verse 4. Paul says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. We see that when we have uh, put off the old man, we renew our mind, we put on the new man, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. Jesus came to inaugurate a new and living way, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20. He came to give us a new name, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. He came so that we could sing a new song, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And in case you missed it, at the end of the Bible, he says, Behold, I make all things new, Revelation 21 and verse 5. But when Jesus comes on the scene, and he is early on in that ministry, he is changing what people were comfortable and familiar with. And I want to show you how that can still challenge us today. There are four things that demonstrate that Jesus' way is a new and improved way that we also should embrace. Number one, as we look at Jesus' way, we see that Jesus changed who had the opportunity to follow God. Verse 27 through 30. And that starts with a man named Levi, a tax collector. By the way, this Levi, we can deduce, is the Matthew of Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, the one who wrote the first gospel. But when Jesus met him, he was a tax collector. And tax collectors were a hated class of people. We understand that. They were collecting taxes from their fellow Jews on behalf of the Roman Empire. And if that wasn't bad enough in the eyes of the Jews, it was bad because apparently there was a tendency for them to take a little extra off the top for themselves. Isn't that what's implied by Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and verse 8? He says, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, why would he say that? Maybe because he could look back through the catalog of his clients and he could see. And instead of doing what was required, giving back double, he said, I will give fourfold. Tax collectors were considered thieves and traitors. And Jesus, though, doesn't want to look at him as he is. Jesus wants to see him for what he can be. And oh, what a transformation takes place in Levi. But he wants to to do it for more than for him. He wants to do it for those that those righteous Pharisees saw as rabble, the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus wanted to spend time in giving them the opportunity. Jesus broadened his view. You see, Jesus is showing us, he's trying to change our view of who those are that God wants following him. 
He does it in an interesting way in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 where he contrasts those that are considered weak and foolish and insignificant with what the world would consider to be the strong and the uh, worldly wise and the important. Why did he do that? Why did he broaden those doors? He said, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. So that's what you are in Christ Jesus, who has been made uh, for us wisdom to God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, let uh, him that boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29 through 31. But let's think about what that means. When Jesus is ministering in Luke chapter 5, the word of God could only go to one people, and that's the Jews. What Jesus is coming to do now, the tax collectors and the sinners, we would surmise to be only the Jews here. But Jesus' ultimate intention, we know, is to open the gates to all humanity. And because of that, you and I can be here tonight worshiping God together with the hope of eternal life. Because God opened the door wide, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, the Apostle Paul speaks to the, those who are Gentiles according to the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made with hands. He says, at one time, you were aliens, you were strangers, you were far off, you were far away, you were with no hope, you were with no God in this world. But because of Jesus coming to change, there's a new and improved way. There's a way that is opened up to all people. You know, I remember it was, it's been almost 20 years, um, and I, I have aged, you can't see me very well, I, I've aged, you know, fairly gracefully, don't you think, uh, in 20 years? But this was my first mission trip, and at the end of that trip, I went with the man who was the preacher for the Main Street Church of Christ in Pikeville, Kentucky at the time, a man named Keith Kasarjan. And as part of that mission trip, we went out to an orphanage, and Solnichny was the name of it. It, nothing impressive at all, just some block buildings. And as soon as we walked on the grounds through the gates, literally dozens of children came up to us. They were wearing tattered and unwashed clothes. They had dirty bodies. And they had must and even in some cases shaved heads. And I remember in those moments that their English was very broken and my Russian is very sparse. And you could look in their eyes and it said everything. They were hungry, not for food, but for attention and for affection. It was only about a half an hour that I spent, but as I closed my eyes, I can see it as though it just happened. You know what, the, the, what we wanted to do? We talked about this all the way back to our little place where we stayed. We would have wanted to, uh, we seriously were trying to figure out how we could adopt every one of them. It wasn't legal. We couldn't afford it financially. But they got into our hearts. We came to understand that these were children who had no family. They had few possessions. And they had a terribly uncertain future. They needed something they didn't have. And, of course, the most important of that was Jesus. What did we look like to God before Christ? Now, there are some of you who were raised in the body of Christ and, and you were taught by your parents the way of the Lord. Some of you have come from the world or from somewhere outside of Christ and perhaps you're, you feel like you feel this point more specially, even though it's true of all of us. How did we look before we came into Christ? We looked stained by sin. Second Peter chapter 2 in verse 13. 
We look spotted by sin. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. We look defiled because of sin. Revelation 21 and verse 27. But scripture tells us that God saw us and he loved us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. And he wanted us. But the difference between God and us is that anyone that wants to come into his family, God is able to adopt. Now, I want us to be able to step back into Luke chapter 5 and understand Jesus' new and improved way was new and improved because he showed us who could be followers of God. It wasn't like what the Pharisees were teaching. It was more. But then second, I want you to notice with me that this way is new and improved because he showed us how one should look at the lost. In verse 30 through 32, you know, Jesus had showed us his compassion for the physically sick. In, in this chapter, there's the paralytic and there's the leper. And how Jesus compassionately reached out and touched the leper. And how he wasn't repulsed by any of the physical ailments that he encountered. But he is expanding that to say, I want you to see that this is how I feel about the sin-sick soul. I want to heal them. And so he uses an image that we can appreciate. He says, they that are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. The Pharisees thought, what audacity that Jesus could mingle and mix with those who are sinners. If there was ever anybody who had a right and a reason to look down on sinners, it was Jesus. But it seemed to be the farthest thing from his mind. And of course, as his followers, the question is, how do we view the lost? How do we see them? God wants us to see them as those who are sick with sin. Not sick so that we can look down on them, but those who are in need of what only Christ can provide to heal them. You know, you find that imagery throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the top of the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They are not mollified or bound up or uh, uh, handled with oil. Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Jeremiah also uses this imagery when he says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people yet recovered? Jeremiah 8 and verse Verse 22. Ezekiel uses that imagery. In Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 4, when he says, The sick you have not healed, the disease you have not uh, 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 brought back. God says, Those around you who are in sin need a physician. They are sick with sin, and I want them whole. You know, Kathy is a strong woman. By the way, yes, she's not here tonight, but I ran this illustration by her before I use this one. She is a strong woman in so many different ways. But you know what she can't do very well? She cannot handle blood and gore. How unfortunate for her that she birthed three boys who provided a lot of both of those. Boys that would uh, go on to be in the emergency room more times, really, literally, than I can count. For those that would bust their heads and would split a gum in a way I won't even share with you publicly. It's kind of gruesome who got in car wrecks and motorcycle wrecks. It literally made her sick to try to help them sometimes. And sometimes she would help them through me. But she loved them so much that she even reached out to help them, even though it was so gruesome to her. Sometimes the lost don't come to us pretty. They may have coarse and foul language. They may find themselves in a situation where they are dysfunctional in their relationship. They may have some self-destructive habits in their lives. 
They may be doing some things that are really going to hurt them. They may look to us, somebody who is living a hard way. But Jesus loved those kind of people when he walked the earth, and he still loves them today. He expects us to overcome our squeamishness and to reach out to them. This is Jesus' new and improved way. He wants it to change how we look at those who are lost. But then in the third place, his new and improved way changes what kind of an outlook that he wants his followers to have. It's interesting what happens in verse 33 through 35. The Pharisees, by the way, Luke says they had their own disciples. And Jesus describes those disciples in less than glowing ways in Matthew chapter 23. When one is converted to their way, they are seven times the son of the devil than they are. But here are the folks who are sitting in judgment of Jesus. And what they do is they try to pit Jesus against John the Baptist. Not that they like John the Baptist way better. They rejected him as well. But he fasted. And here's Jesus with these tax collectors and sinners, and they're eating a meal together. They're just trying to pit those two against one another. Jesus is saying that he's about to go through something that's very dreaded in verse 35. And his disciples are about to do without him. They're going to no longer have him around. And there's going to come a time in the future when, in being faithful to him, they were going to go through affliction and persecution But right now, he's wanting them to focus on their relationship with him. They had him at the moment. And so because of that, they had joy. They had fellowship. You know, what Jesus wants us to be are people who, whatever the circumstances are, find contentment. The Apostle Paul said as much. He says, I have abounded and I've suffered need. I'm instructed to be full and to go hungry But I have learned to be content in whatever condition I am in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. You think about this. As we're trying to live the Christian life, there are going to be people out there who are going to criticize us no matter what we do. There's some people who are going to look at our life and see how happy we are to be Christians, and I hope that's exactly what we're showing each and every day. We're not always on the mountaintop, but most every day should be a good day because we're going to heaven. But as we look and see what happens, when we are joyful, people will say we're too frivolous, or we're too happy, or unrealistically happy. Or sometimes maybe when we're going through something, or we're suffering because of our Christian faith, They're going to say that we're too serious. We don't know how to have any fun. Some people can't be pleased no matter what we do. I'm always reminded of that Aesop fable about the father, the son, and the donkey. And you know how that goes and how they have this donkey and they're going on a long journey. And they both get up on the back of that donkey and they go into the first village and they're ridiculed for, uh, I guess, by animal rights activists of their day. Aesop would have known and said they were burdening down that uh, donkey and so... The father got off and walked beside the donkey, got to the second village, and people ridiculed the boy for allowing his old father to have to walk while he gets to ride and ease. And, of course, they switch positions. They get to the next town, and there they accuse the father of abuse for making his young son walk while he rides in the lap of luxury. And so in the next town, they both are walking and leading the donkey, and the people said, what foolish people to misuse an animal so. There are some people, no matter what we do, We're not going to please them. That's not our task. Our task is to please our Father. That's what Jesus could do. Jesus could focus on what the Father's will was. And he comes to show us what followers of uh, of his ought to have. 
What kind of joy, what kind of outlook that we ought to have. Jesus' way is a new and improved way. He also comes to show in this new and improved way where people should turn for truth. In that end of the chapter, it's a little enigmatic, isn't it? In verse 37 to 39, what's Jesus talking about when he's talking about putting new wine in the old wine skins? What's he talking about when he says about putting a, a, a new patch on an old garment? He kind of explains some of what he means there. What the Pharisees were peddling was their own version of the law of Moses. But Jesus comes to expose not only that, but to expose the revelation from God. There's a new way, a living way, that Jesus came to bring. And it's not a patchwork gospel. He couldn't put his teaching over the old law in some way to mend it or improve it. Now the old law, properly understood, is pointing the way to Jesus. And they're in perfect harmony with one another. But Jesus is a way that's superior Jesus came to show them what righteousness was. And you couldn't fit it. You couldn't, but see, here's what the Pharisees want to do. They, they wanted to do what they preferred. What they thought it should be. And if that's true of the old law, that's true of anything that would compete with New Testament Christianity, there's a challenge in that for all of us. As we are people of the book, We're going to examine things. See, sometimes we come along, we have our own customs, we have our own traditions, and we don't think that we're doing it, but we put it on a par with biblical truth. We need to make sure that one by one, everything, we examine it by what God's Word says. And the goal is always to be striving to fulfill God's will more and more every day. We can't improve on His way. We can't use another way. Now, you know, that could be a very abstract point. Let me make that practical with some specificity. Jesus' way is that if there's offenses, you go one on one. I don't like that. You know what's easier to do? To text or call and tell everybody what somebody did to me. It's comfortable, but it's not his way. When there is behavior in the body of Christ that is untoward, that's immoral, that's ungodly, we kind of maybe just turn our head and and hope it'll go away. There's some difficult teaching in the Word of God. You know that in certain circumstances, the Bible tells us that we are to withdraw fellowship from those who walk disorderly. But I I don't don't like that. That's going to hurt feelings. That's unkind. That's that's Jesus' new and improved way. You see, there are so many things we come up against in Scripture that are uncomfortable. And we've set up our own way, a different way of doing things, instead of His way. That doesn't really sound bubbly like new wine, does it? But that's His word. Jesus came to give us a new and improved way. But we like to do things the way we prefer them. Why? Because people like it better that way. You see, Jesus did not come to be a reformer. He came to be a transformer. And and Jesus, when he came, came to fill us. And when Jesus fills us, he changes our shape. He makes us more mature. He makes us look more like him. Jesus didn't come to make us feel good about ourselves. He came to get us to crucify ourselves and let uh, uh, him live in us. Jesus didn't come to entertain us. Jesus came to rule us and to be an authority over us. But when we let him do that, we can have joy and purpose like we never thought was possible. When we look at Jesus' way, it's a new and improved way. 
It's a way that will change the way that we look at ourselves. It'll change the way that we look at each other. It'll change the way that we look at the lost. And most of all, it will change the way that we look at our God. Jesus didn't come for the status quo. He came to change us. And aren't we thankful that he did? This evening, that change is possible for you if you've not yet obeyed the gospel. Kaysen's about to lead us in a song of invitation. If you need to put on Christ in baptism, we're waiting to help you to do that. If you're a child of God and there's some need that you have, and we can help you with it, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.